Hi, this is Eredil Hornsteiner, and welcome to Life Living's Transformational Connection, the place where you experience how to reconnect your body, mind, and spirit to God. Today we have the perfect person who has written the perfect book to tell us just how to do that, and he is Dr. Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist and the author of two books, Anatomy of the Soul and his most recent book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Thank you, Eddie. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Thompson, you are now on to your second book, but your first book, Anatomy of the Soul, which was published in 2010, five years ago, has still been gaining traction and making its way around the world. Tell us, what is the book Anatomy of the Soul about? The first thing to say is that uh, whether, whether you're a God follower or not, I haven't come across anyone who uh, doesn't want to be living in a world of goodness and beauty. We all really want that. Um, the second thing, after acknowledging that, is that uh, recent developments and research discoveries in the field of neuroscience really are pointing us toward that world of goodness and beauty. One of the major elements of that research also includes not just studies about the brain, but studies about how human beings attach and connect to one another and how those attachment processes affect the brain and how the brain can then go on to predispose people to attach to their children and to other adults uh, as well. But those interplays between attachment research, the way we connect to each other relationally, and their connection to the brain also is reflective, quite interestingly, it's reflective of, and we would say mirrors and is an example of the biblical narrative. What we read in the Bible about what God has done in creating us, in loving us, even in the middle of our brokenness, in sending Jesus to be not only our Savior, but in the resurrection, the one who is bringing us into a new life and who is going to be the one who consummates our world in the new heaven and new earth, that beautiful story is reflected in this new research and neuroscience. But furthermore, what we are discovering from the people who uh, really explore this with us and we with them is that as we apply some of these findings uh, that we're discovering in this field that we call interpersonal neurobiology, uh, we find that people's life in God, the very life that they have in their relationship with Jesus, uh, is uh, regenerated. And, and as such, I think, follows uh, what St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans when he says that anyone who looks at creation, from the beginning of time as we look at creation, creation points us to God's attributes and his power and his nature. And in this sense, we would say that um, the way in which neuroscience and attachment research uh, as part of nature points us to God, it also doesn't just point us in a certain direction. It also reflects ways in which our life with God can be regenerated and be reflective of that renewed mind that St. Paul also talks about. The last thing that we would say that the book is really about is that for these features to really be actualized, for them to be realized, for them to be put into practice and lived out so that life can flourish, 
one of the uh, cornerstones of all that revolves around this question. We, we live in a world in which people find it very important to know things. We all want more information because information means power, power to control our environments and our universes and our relationships and so forth. But the Bible talks about a very different way of knowing, and that's around the question of to what degree are we actually known? Not what do we know, but how well are we known? St. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, the person who loves God is known by God. He doesn't say the person who loves God knows God. Now that's not to imply that knowing God is unimportant. It's very important, of course. But perhaps as important, if not more so, is the question of to what degree are we known by anyone else? Most specifically, to what degree are we known by God? And the way we answer that question is an important uh, signpost, if you will, an important uh, litmus test for the degree to which our minds are even able to be renewed, the degree to which are we, we are able even to put into practice a lot of these uh, findings that neuroscience and attachment research is revealing to us. And we find then that to the degree that we are known by others, deeply known, confessionally known, we find that we don't just feel better about ourselves, but we find that even in all of our vocational callings, whether that be as a parent or as a pastor or as a teacher or as an engineer, we find that that leads to greater creative growth, greater capacity for thinking uh, outside the box, for taking even more proper risks uh, in the world that God has called us to steward. And uh, so those are the main points that uh, we try to uh, talk about with Anatomy of the Soul. You said knowing God requires the integration of all parts of the brain. When some people think of the idea of faith and science coming together or marrying each other, it may, take them, it may make them feel uncomfortable. They may feel that we should not use the intellect or use our intellect or even our emotions to understand our spiritual experiences with God. Yet for you, you seem to do just that along with a strong spiritual conviction. Why do you feel it is necessary for Christians to understand how God created the human body, particularly the mind? Well, you know, I, it, it's a great question. I mean, I think part of our challenge uh, when it comes to um, our, our uncertainty about, you know, the, the coming together of faith and science uh, it may have to do with the fact that many of us are not that familiar with um, the history of the West. Uh, many of us are not familiar with the fact that uh, the fact that we even have science, as science uh, is uh, um, lived out in our culture, um, is explicitly because of Christian faith. I mean, it, were the, it was the early church fathers who, uh, as they wrote about the nature of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and as they developed a theology of the Trinity back in around three to 500 A.D., they laid the groundwork for understanding that this is a world of order. This is a world that is not completely chaotic. This is a world that, because it, because it is a world of order, it can be studied because we trust that God has made this world this, this way. And many people don't understand, aren't, aren't just, just aren't familiar from their basic history courses, that science actually directly, as we experience it, grew out of faith. It grew out of people's love for Jesus, as oddly as that might seem. And so just as then 
God uses science as a way to help us discover the world, we also would say that God is now, as, he, as it is written in the book of Acts, where it is written that God does not ever leave himself without a witness, we come to find that God now uses science not to prove his existence in the same way that we would never use science for a husband would never use science to prove his love for his wife. He would just want his wife to trust that he loves her and vice versa. We don't use science to prove God's existence, but we do allow science to teach us things about the way that we work. And so when Jesus says, therefore love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength, we have to raise the question, well, if I'm going to love God with all of my mind, what does that mean? What is the mind such that loving God with all of it is something that I can even do? Science, actually, is helpful in giving us some answers to that question about what my mind actually is. We in the West often think of the mind uh, as something that's reducible to our thoughts, what I think, when in fact, the mind is a lot more than that. It is also what I feel, what I sense, what I image. It is something that I uh, actually experience throughout my body. When we are anxious, we know that we're anxious because of things that we feel in our extended body. I feel butterflies in my stomach. I feel sweaty palms. If I didn't have access to my body, I would not be able to be aware that my mind was at work. And so St. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say, don't you know that your heart is the temple or that your mind is the temple or that your brain is the temple, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In this case, we would want to know that the Holy Spirit actually uses my entire body to get message to me, messages to me about what the Holy Spirit wants me to be doing from moment to moment. That is all part of our working definition of the mind as we understand it through the lens of interpersonal neurobiology. And as such, we would say that in the same way that Jesus came affirming and blessing the body, in the same way that the church mothers and fathers early on in the history of the church were actually laying the groundwork for the creation of science because they believed in a God who believed in science, we can now say that science, in the best of its intentions, now reflects and points us to the story that we have believed all along. I think the other thing that's important to know is that science tells us how things work. It can tell us how neurons fire and connect to other neurons. It can tell us how trains operate. It can tell us about uh, geological movement and so forth. Science does not tell us about their purpose. Science does not tell us about why they work the way they do. They don't tell us about why a train was made. They don't tell us about why neurons ultimately do what they do. They can just tell us the what about you know, how neurons function. The story behind all that, that story is a story that we humans have to decide in terms of which one we're going to believe we live in. And in this way, we don't have to be afraid of science. In fact, we can say that science is telling us the what about how we operate. But in fact, it is our faith that helps us make sense of the science that we are studying. But if we don't study the science, if we are not paying attention to how the mind works, it, didn't, it then becomes very easy for us to begin to operate in ways in which we ignore 
certain parts of our world that we have been explicitly invited and even commanded in the Bible to pay attention mm -hmm. to. So there is a theme of oneness in your book, that is the integration of body, mind, and spirit. And, and that's quite different from what we are used to as Christians. We divide the secular from the spiritual. We divide the body from the soul. How do you think this dualism has affected the Christian life? I'd have to say that in, in, in my experience, um, uh, what this, it, it does this, it, this dualism affects things at least on a couple of levels. One level just has to do with how people um, really kind of think about uh, their own personal life with God as being this rather abstract uh, phenomenon, this abstract experience that takes place in their mind or their head. And so things that are quote-unquote spiritual uh, are not necessarily measurable. They're not things that we necessarily do with our bodies. Um, so prayer is very spiritual. Um, maybe even reading the Bible is spiritual, uh, but uh, producing a great work of art is not considered to be the same thing. Uh, and so we, we would, for instance, uh, we, we separate these things that we think um, from the material world because we don't see the material world as being quote-unquote spiritual. Now, N.T. Wright uh, one of the Anglican bishops that's been a, a well-known New Testament scholar and who's been very influential for me in the last 15 years, he says that one of the reasons that we find ourselves in this place is because uh, we read language in the New Testament like things of the spirit and things of the flesh that St. Paul writes about. And he says we misunderstand what he means. We hear through the dualistic language and metaphors of our world that when Paul would say spirit, he's really talking about the unseen world. He's talking about the world of faith and prayer and so forth, and the world of flesh referring to the material universe. Wright would say that that's a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of that language, that when Paul would write about things of the spirit, he's talking about all things that are things of God, whether those things are the unseen world or the seen material world. And things of the flesh are not things that are of the material world, they are things that are not of God, whether that's unseen world or the seen world. What this tells us is that all of creation is being redeemed. Romans 8 points this out explicitly, that all of creation is groaning and waiting for the redemption of mankind, because with the redemption of mankind comes the renewal of all of creation. And what's so beautiful about interpersonal neurobiology and what the discoveries that it's pointing to is that Jesus is not just coming to save our souls and so that we can go to heaven. As C.S. Lewis said, if all, if all God wanted to do was to take us to heaven, he could, just, he could have just populated people in his heaven that way. But God is looking to turn people into good people in order to turn the world into a good place. And that that new heaven and new earth is coming one day. And what we are doing now is practicing for what's coming. And this practice includes understanding that the renewal of the world, the renewal of my mind, is not just the renewal of things I think. It also includes the grounding of those things that I think in the very brain structures that are correlated with those thoughts. But when we take that seriously, it means then we then can see that the kingdom of God 
also happens when I, with integrity, create a new piece of software engineering. It also happens when I'm in the classroom and create a new piece of really helpful curriculum for my third graders, or when I preach a great sermon, or when I, really, when I, when I do really great work at, at repairing a car as a mechanic. That God is not just oh, what I feel about the person whose car I'm fixing, but it is a, God is about the, the very work that I am doing in repairing the car. And so what interpersonal neurobiology is pointing to is not just that we get to feel better about ourselves, but it's pointing to this whole mission that we read about in the scriptures, that God in Jesus, in the resurrection, has begun the process of, re of renewing the entire universe, beginning with the renewing of our hearts and minds as human beings. For the sake of our listening audience, what is the meaning of renewing the mind, or what does that look like to you? Um, have the experience of wishing that I could not be angry at my spouse, but I'm still angry at my spouse. Wishing that I could not hold a grudge. Wishing that I wouldn't be lusting. Wishing that I wouldn't be doing a range of different things. Or wishing that I would do things that I'm not doing. And those things that are of the mind and the mind being not just things, again, that we think, but things that we sense, things that we image, things that we feel, things that we do with our bodies. Renewal in, those, uh, in that sense means that we are actually having different thoughts. We are interpreting our sensations differently. We are turning our attention to different images. We are doing different things with our bodies to affect our brains. And that renewal process is something that takes practice, doing small things over and over again. In, in the book, in Anatomy the Soul, we name a number of different practices that people can enter into that, with practice over time, begin to literally change the way their neurons are firing in their brain. We can't change our mind without changing our brain. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. And so when St. Paul writes in Romans 12, therefore, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he was not a neuroscientist as far as we know. He may not even have known about what, a brain tissue, what brain tissue looks like or how it functions. But I don't think that this would surprise Paul when we talk about how when our thoughts are different, when we are imaging things differently, that, that our brains are changing as well. And this is what the new neuroscience is teaching us. But one thing that is crucially important to remember, these renewals of our mind cannot be done in isolation. We do them most effectively when we are doing this work together in community with other people. We were made for community. We were made for each other. And so even for your listeners who are hearing this, the question is not just what can I as an individual do differently so that my mind is renewed, but what must I in community with others do so that our minds are renewed? Okay, so how do we, how do our minds become renewed so they look like Christ's mind? Because I assume um, that is what we should be modeling, right? the mind of Christ. Right. right. 
Well, here would be here, here would be one one simple example. Uh, it, it, and, I, and I say simple in that the story is not that complicated. It doesn't take rocket science to understand this. But as we uh, say in the business, life is very simple and very hard. Uh, what makes life hard is not its complexity. What makes life hard is the fact that we have to continue to repeat things over and over again that we don't really want to have to repeat. We don't really want to have to persevere with things. We live in a world of McDonald's where we should be able to order something once and it is delivered to us in about three minutes. We don't want to have to do the hard work of spiritual disciplines of fasting and confession and the like in order for us to have the kind of renewal that God is calling us to. In the book, we have one exercise that highlights the story of Jesus' baptism. I pointed out as the baptism that takes place in Luke's version, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, where Jesus hears God the Father say, You are my Son, whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Now I have to say that, um, you know, that, that hearing that voice uh, that Jesus heard uh, is, I think, uh, really instructional and important for us because what that tells us is that Jesus was living in a world in which he was hearing a voice that I got to be honest with you, Anna, I don't, I don't often find myself hearing every day. I don't wake up in the morning to a voice that says, Kurt, I am just so glad you're here. I can't wait to start the day with you. I wake up to an <laughs> alarm clock. You know, and that alarm clock, you know, it's, it's intended not to be very pleasant when it goes off. Its intention is to wake me up out of a stupor. But how many of us are aware of the fact that we serve a God, that we serve a God who every morning is waiting for us, wanting to tell us, Etta, we've been waiting for you all night. We are so thrilled that you were awake because we can't wait for your day to start. And the reason that we can't wait is because you're going to get to have this conversation with this shrink this morning, and so forth and so <laughs> on. But how many of us, how many of us are remembering and practicing, paying attention to that very scripture? What I tell people is that God is saying to each one of us what he said to Jesus. Each one of us is a person to whom God is saying, you are my child, you are my daughter, you are my son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. The problem is that we're not paying attention. And we only become that which we pay attention to. As we say, we, what we pay attention to, we remember, and what we remember becomes our anticipated future. If I'm not doing the persevering, effortful work of, on a regular, daily basis, and in some context with other people regularly remembering and putting into my mind an image, practicing hearing God say, you're my son, you're my daughter whom I love, I will forget it. But if I practice that, it is not just something that becomes a habit necessarily. It also becomes something that literally becomes embedded in my neurons in a new, fresh way. And that means that at 10 o'clock in the morning, when I'm having an impatient conversation with my boss, if I am simultaneously imagining Jesus 
saying to me, I'm just so glad that you're here. We're going to be fine. Because I've been practicing doing this over and over again, it absolutely transforms how I hear that conversation in which my boss is not happy with me. That is a concrete example of how our minds are renewed on a day-to-day -day basis. But it does require the effort that is ours. Jesus said, you must remain in me as I remain in the Father. Mm -hmm. you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. You must remain in me. There is a sense in which this, you know, God takes our relationship with him very, very seriously. This is not just a one-way street. No relationship, that, no relationship that we have uh, is going to flourish without our putting effort into our side of that relationship. This mm -hmm. is what God has invited us to, and in so doing, our minds are transformed as our brains are changed. So we have to put in work. Put in Indeed. work. Indeed. Right. Faith, but our work is dead. That's right. Um, my last question. If you seek a deeper relationship with Christ, how would this book be helpful? In a couple of ways. Uh, one is um, I think that it can be helpful just in giving people uh, more information about the way uh, the way neuroscience, uh, and again, it, it, it's, 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 this, is, this is not a neuroscience textbook. People don't have to be afraid of the book. It, it requires some effort, I think, especially if you know, you're not really familiar that much with how the brain works. It requires some effort to read and to, um, you know, to kind of get familiar with some of the terms and kind of how your mind works. Um, but I think it's really helpful for people to have a, a better sense of how their mind and brain is working. Um, we know, for instance, that if you go to the physical therapist because you have a problem with your shoulder and the therapist gives you some exercises to do and sends you home to do them, you're much more likely to do them if the therapist actually explains to you how the way those exercises are changing and strengthening the musculature of your shoulder. When you have a clearer understanding of the way your body is changing because of how the exercises are being applied, you're much more likely to do them. When we have a better working understanding of what the mind is and how the mind works, we are more likely to do things that can renew the mind. And so in that, that's one way, I think, that in getting some, getting some familiarity with the neuroscience uh, is helpful in putting us, putting, you know, we're more likely to put things into practice. A second way is that, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, we, we do really, um, we do uh, offer people some concrete things to begin to apply uh, such that those changes can be realized. And then finally, I would say is that uh, one thing that I tried to do is to, um, uh, you know, in, this is not just a, a book about, you know, information. We're not just giving people a list of, you know, new ideas. We, we try to incorporate that in the stories of people. And uh, so I, um, our, our hope would be that is, as the reader reads the number of different stories that highlight and reflect the information that we're talking about, uh, that they would find their own story being echoed, that their imagination and their curiosity uh, would turn to their own story, and, and they would find that they would perhaps have, be reminded of those places in their own life that they have left, you know, that they've had to bury or seal over, that have been wounded and kept in the dungeon for, you know, days, months, or even years, uh, because Jesus is really serious about our stories. He's serious about coming to heal them, coming to regenerate them, in order for us to be renewed, to be transforming agents in the worlds in which we live.
Right, and that getting to know your story, that's a part of the being known, allowing people to know you. Right, right. right. And that vulnerability and the transparency that come along with it as well. Right. Dr. Kurt, I just want to thank you so much for this interview with Live Living. It's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for your generous donation by being on the show today. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.